0: Thank you very much, Mark. Uh, It's great to be here, Uh, and uh, I'll just follow up on something that uh, Tom DiLorenzo said about students being hungry for these uh, ideas. Uh, and he said professors don't want their students to hear it. Actually, maybe I'm the opposite of that. But I will say, you know, what, one nice thing about the Mises Institute is there's a lot of literature that's online and easy for students to get. And they run into it. My students run into it without my saying, you need to go to this website. And look, my students run into this stuff and ask me about it all the time. So it's just great that the Institute has... So much literature online and students are picking it up. They're finding it on their own. Uh, and if you're, um, in my generation, you're used to reading stuff, you know, paper, uh, paper stuff. And, and really, I mean, students these days don't do that. Uh, I'll recommend sometimes that they, they read something and a student will come back to me and say, I've looked all over. I can't, I can't find it. So, well, did you look in the library? <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't looked there yet. So anyways, I just, um, <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, I mean, if you get attuned to that, that's the way students think. I did bring a copy of the book. I, that copy looks like it's a lot uh, bigger. And it's a brand new book. It's 2013, uh, Producing Prosperity. Uh, and so let me just give you an idea about um, what's in the book and what motivated me to write it, because it's really a book about economic analysis and, and analyzing 20th century economic analysis uh, from an Austrian uh, standpoint. But, um, uh, you know, let's, uh, think about how well off that we are today, uh, compared to people, you know, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, uh, I mean, I've been around long enough. I can remember the first time I saw a microwave oven. Uh, and I do know, uh, cause I used to teach here at Auburn. Uh, I moved 25 years ago. Wow. Um, but I know nobody had a cell phone in Auburn when I, when I moved away because there wasn't any self-service in Auburn. Now everybody has one. Uh, you know, we take it for granted. But, you know, you look at at people in poverty today uh, in the United States. You know, they have microwave ovens. They have flat-screen televisions. They have cell phones. Uh, they, you know, not to mention, you know, electricity, air conditioning, indoor plumbing. They have automobiles. Uh, so you, you look at how well off we are today, and it's because of economic progress. Uh, and uh, uh, so... Uh, What I wanted to do in this book is to try to align um, uh, uh, economic theory uh, more with this idea about the economic progress that has actually produced prosperity. Because when you look at the development of economics... Uh, and I'm not talking about the Austrian school, but you just look at the development of economics in the 20th century, and and that development has been mostly uh, trying to better understand the properties of economic equilibrium. Uh, and it hasn't always been that way. I do have a chapter in the book, it's a, a about the history of economic uh, thought. And if you go back to the 18th century, uh, which is maybe the beginning of economic analysis, uh, and I'll use uh, Mises as my source for that. If you read Human Action, the very first sentence in the book is, economics is the youngest of all sciences. Uh, and he talks about how it's only recently that people have uh, discovered this remarkable uh, interdependence of economic phenomena. Uh, so if you go back to the 18th century... Uh, the big issue in economics was, how is wealth created? Uh, and you look at, uh, the mercantilists who thought accumulating gold and silver was how you get wealthy. Physiocrats thought wealth came from the land. You look at Adam Smith's book, The Wealth of Nations. The title tells you what he's talking about. Actually, the full, that Wealth of Nations, that's the movie title. Uh, the full title of the book is, An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. That's what Adam Smith was interested in. Is, you know, how is wealth created? Um, and that idea sort of came to an abrupt end, uh, uh, at least partly because of the ideas of Thomas Robert Malthus, you know, and so Malthus uh, thought, you know, most people are going to be stuck at a subsistence level, going to be stuck at, in poverty because population growth is going to out, uh, outstrip the availability of resources, uh, so it just doesn't really matter how wealth is created if everybody's always going to be poor. Uh and so you look at the development of uh economics in the 19th century uh and one of the big issues at least from the standpoint of economic theory was what determines value the labor theory of value that David Ricardo um uh developed that you find in in, in Marx on one side and then the with the marginal revolution and Carl uh, Menger's ideas of the subjective theory of value demand side theory of value um a utility theory of value in contrast with the supply side objective labor theory of value, what determines value. That was a big uh, issue in the 19th century that was more or less settled, at least the way contemporary economists would view it, more or less settled in Alfred Marshall's um, uh, Principles of Economics. And Marshall, there's a, f- a section in Marshall where Marshall talks about, you know, what is it that determines values? Is it the supply side? Is it the demand side? He says, we might as well ask which blade of the scissors does the cutting. You know, it's both. It's supply and, and demand. Uh, and that answered the question, I think, pretty much the way most economists would answer it today, but answered it in an equilibrium framework. So Marshall has this equilibrium framework. And if you look at the development of economics throughout the 20th century, it's been trying to better understand the properties of economic equilibrium. You look in at microeconomics, and in microeconomics, uh, the development of, of micro we have this idea of a Pareto optimal allocation of resources that's the best you can get and so we look at all these problems of market failure externalities and public goods and monopolies and things and then we look for ways that we can solve those market failure problems and once we do that once we get to a Pareto optimal allocation of resources then what well, that's it. That's what we wanted to do. So we're there. You know, we've maximized welfare. The same thing is true in macroeconomics. If you look at macroeconomics, big issue there is uh, instability. And the idea is, how do we get to a macroeconomic equilibrium of full employment and low inflation? And, and then what? No, that's what we wanted. That's the goal. Once we're there, that's the goal. And so throughout the 20th century, in microeconomics and macroeconomics, what economic analysis has done has been to try to better understand the properties of economic equilibrium. Uh, But when you look at, at, again, you know, how well off we are today, is it because we're closer to Pareto optimality than we were before? No, it's economic progress that improves our welfare. Uh, And so there's a mismatch between the economy that's described in economic theory and the actual real-world economy that makes us as well-off as we are today, progress versus equilibrium. Uh, I have a, uh, another chapter in the book where I talk about um, uh, the concept of equilibrium, uh, but I contrast that, and I, and I look at what markets actually do and when you when you look at the entrepreneurial nature of the economy the economic progress that takes place equilibrium really isn't descriptive of what an economy does if you think about the concept of equilibrium it means if you disturb the equilibrium there's a tendency for the economy to return back to that equilibrium but for the most part that's not what happens the things that
1: dis- says on the subject and I have two more planned for later this year. This is because it is impossible for anyone to really believe in individual liberty, the free market, the Constitution, limited government, and a free society, and at the same time be a proponent or defender of the war on drugs. Republicans try, but of course they don't they don't really believe in liberty, the Constitution, and a free society in the first place. But if my unique perspective won't entice them to read my essays, then I offer this statement from Ludwig von Mises, certainly no drug user. I offer this statement for them to consider. Here's Mises. Opium and morphine are certainly dangerous dangerous habit-forming drugs. But once the principle is admitted, that it is the duty of government to protect the individual against his own foolishness. No serious objections can be advanced against further encroachments. Thank you.